0: invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Exodus chapter 12. We'll be looking at verses 29 through 42. If you haven't brought a Bible with you this morning, uh, you can uh, uh, use the Pew Bible in the pew rack in front of you if you desire, and our passage is found on page 54 in the Pew Bibles. We have uh, just... Song from Psalm 9 that the Lord is a refuge for all who are oppressed. And we are going to see in our passage this morning uh, that God is indeed the refuge of the oppressed Israelite slaves, and we are going to see that God is going to deliver them in this uh, passage this morning. The Exodus has been foretold in Exodus chapter 11. We have seen in the first part of Exodus chapter 12 uh, the Passover itself, uh, the preparation of the Israelites to leave, as well as instructions for future Passovers to remember the event itself. And here we are going to indeed see uh, the event itself as told in Exodus chapter 12. So hear the word of the Lord, Exodus 12, beginning in verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians... And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord your God as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold, jewelry, and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor In the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough, That they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And thus far, God's holy word. Let's go to him in prayer. Oh God, how we thank you that you are a good and just and faithful God. We praise you, O God, that you are a God who remembers your promises. And, our God, we pray that you would take this text, that you would write it on our hearts. O God, that you would help us to remember the great salvation that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. In Luke chapter 9, we see... account of the Transfiguration, a well-known New Testament story in the life of Jesus where uh, Jesus goes up on the mountain with his three closest uh, disciples, Peter, James, and John, and there he meets with Moses and Elijah. And on that mountain, literally, the The Greek says, it doesn't necessarily come across in the English, uh, but literally the Greek says they talk about his exodus, is what the Greek word is, the exodus that Jesus is going to accomplish in Jerusalem. Literally the word exodus means a way out, ex, the Greek word for out, Hadas meaning away, a way out, a road out, a going out, a departure. For Jesus, this departure included his death, resurrection, ascension. It also included our redemption. Our salvation was accomplished in those events. And in many ways, of course, we have a foreshadowing of that here in the exodus of the Israelites from the land of Egypt. It's freedom that they attain here, freedom, but it's freedom that comes with a cost. We read at the end of this passage in verses 40 and 41 that they had been in the land of Egypt for 430 years years. Now that is longer than the United States has been a nation. Just consider that. 430 years they had been slaves in Egypt. They they know no other life than life in Egypt. They're going out into the unknown, into the dangers that the wilderness is going to present uh, to them. Yet in many ways, it also marks a new life for them, release from the oppression of slavery, release from the hard labor that they have been under. So let's look at this passage together. As I tend to always see, this passage does break down nicely, I think, into three uh, parts Uh, So let's look at this uh, together. First of all, in verses 29 to 32, we see salvation, but it is a salvation that also includes judgment. Salvation that also includes judgment. We see in verses 29 and 30 that the plague is told simply, it's told briefly, in only two verses— a good reminder that less is sometimes more. Good reminder for pastors, I think, and preachers. Uh, simply, in two brief verses. At midnight, verse 29, the Lord struck down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock notice the language here the firstborn of the pharaoh a pharaoh who sat on this throne the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon if you look back and if you remember back back in chapter 11 verse 5 it actually says from pharaoh to the slave girl who is behind the handmill and here the language is a little bit different But the meaning is the same, from the highest to the lowest and everyone in between. In other words, all households were included. None were excluded. Great and small, all were affected by this plague, including the livestock of Egypt were included. In verse 30, we read that a, a great cry rises up. As the text tells us, there was not a house where someone was not dead. The exception, of course, is what? Those who had the, the blood on the doorframes of their house, the Israelites who, who put the blood on the doorframes of their house. It's hard to imagine, isn't it, this scene of national mourning, this scene of national weeping, this scene of of crying out from their, their homes. And this is not weeping silently in their houses, as we might do today. This is crying out with a great cry, loudly. And what we see here is then Pharaoh's surrender in verses 31 and 32. He summons Moses and and Aaron by night. And we see a a number of ironies in these two verses, 31 and 32. 32. One irony is, earlier he had said to them, you will not see my face again. And here he is summoning Moses and Aaron into his presence. Of course, the situation has changed in a way that Pharaoh did not expect. For the first time, he actually calls his slaves the people of Israel He recognizes them as a nation. He says, up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go and serve the Lord as you have said. That's another thing that is ironic. He tells them, go, serve the Lord. Not serve him, but serve the Lord." And he drives them out. Notice the imperatives that he uses here in verse 31. Up, he says, or get up, your translation might read. Go out, go, serve. Several imperatives in this one verse. Get out. It's like the old children's book. Marvin K. Mooney, will you please go now? I said go, and go I meant, that's what Pharaoh is saying here, go, get out. Of course, God had already told Moses that this is what Pharaoh was going to do back in chapter 11, verse 1, yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here, and when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. He will send you out. What's happening here, mentioned in the past, this is a destruction in many ways of the future of Egypt. The future of Egypt was in the firstborn. The next Pharaoh dies in this plague. The heir in all the families, the main heir in all the families, dies in this plague. So not only do we have great sorrow in Egypt, we we have social chaos in Egypt. The future of Egypt is at stake in this plague. As the writer to the Hebrews puts it, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. A fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There's also an irony at the end of this passage, this interaction between Pharaoh and Moses and Aaron, where Pharaoh actually asks for blessing. And at the end of verse 32, take your flocks, your herds, as you have said, be gone and bless me, also. He asked for their blessing. He asked for their blessing. In one way, this is a—we don't know whether they did. They probably did, but this is probably a—a a, a reminder for us that God is, Himself says that He will bless the nations, and I think we—we're going to see a hint of that in just a few moments. But we see here that salvation and judgment go together. Salvation and judgment go together. God saves some. He judges others. Our salvation was actually accomplished. How? By judgment. judgment on the Lord Jesus. Christ, or as Phil Rikens says, the divide between salvation and damnation is marked in blood. The divide between salvation and damnation is marked in blood. It's marked on the blood with the Passover, and of course for us it's marked in the blood of Christ, who died on our behalf. Christ, the firstborn the only begotten Son of God, the Lamb of God, whose blood turns away the wrath of God, took on our judgment so that we might have salvation. So first, salvation and judgment. Secondly, we see plunder. We see that in verses 33 to 36. Plunder. The Egyptians are are urgent. They want the Israelites to to get out of the land. They're afraid that there's going to be more death coming. We shall all be dead, they say in verse 33. But of course, as we've already seen, God's people are prepared. They have their unleavened bread. As we, we, we read here, they also have, in verse 35, the silver and the gold and clothing that they had gotten by asking the Egyptians, that God had opened the Egyptians' heart to, to, give them to, the, uh, to give it to them for their upcoming uh, journey. God has miraculously done this, opening their hearts, providing for them. Remember, these are poor slaves. They have nothing. They live Hand to mouth, basically, and now they're heading into the, the wilderness. There are no convenience stores. There are no grocery stores. They're 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 going out for the most part in many places into barren deserts. They need provisions, and God provides for their needs. He's going to provide for them for what is going to be used in the building of the tabernacle. Of course, what he's also providing for them is going to be used in the building of the the golden calf later. But God is providing for them. Our resources can be used for good, or they can be used for bad. But God is providing for his people. And in particular, he provides here through his oppressors the oppressors of his people you can never underestimate how god will work never underestimate how god will work god can open hearts god can provide for our needs think of this consider this the israelites going out with really only unleavened bread, flocks, and herds. But they're going to need clothes. They're going to need many, many provisions along the way. And God provides. This also, of course, fulfills the wonderful uh, passage when God, that God uh, told to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15 when he said, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Here we see it fulfilled in Exodus chapter 12. Thus, verse 36 tells us, here in Exodus 12, they plundered the Egyptians. Plundered the Egyptians, that is military language. It's military language, the plunder of the Egyptians. In fact, we see several times military language, specifically military language, being used in our passage this morning. In verse 37, we read that they go on foot. That was specifically used, the Hebrew word here is specifically used in the Old Testament for foot soldiers. It's a military term. We also see in verse 41, the word host is is used. The host of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. That word "hosts" is also used consistently in the Old Testament to refer to armies. In fact, if you have the New King James version, which I, I, I know many of you do, yeah, it, the New King James literally reads, all the armies of the Lord went out from Egypt. John Mackay says this, Israel left Egypt like a victorious army that had stripped the vanquished of their spoil and were departing loaded with booty. A victorious army that had stripped the vanquished of their spoil and were departing loaded with booty. They leave with the spoils of war and indeed they will soon face battles ahead. And of course this is how The church is to see itself as a fighting force. We see in the New Testament military language used many times with regard to the church and the church's mission. One clear example is Ephesians chapter 6, the armor of God, uh, putting on the armor of God, including especially the sword of the spirit that is the word of God. As the Getty hymn puts it, with the sword that makes the wounded whole, we will fight with faith and valor. And Jesus himself said, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Christ has done that in his ministry and in his death on the cross. What's our task? To plunder the house of Satan. To win sinners for the Lord Jesus Christ. Third and finally, we see pilgrimage in verses 37 to 42. Pilgrimage in 37 to 42. In 37, we see the journey begin. People of Israel journey from Ramses to Sukkot, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. It's hard to know exactly how many Israelites there are, and there are a lot of debates about this and a lot of debates about the language here, but basically the, the number total is probably, as Dr. Currid uh, says, between 2 and 3 million. Other commentators say the same thing. 2 to 3 million Israelites going out of, of Egypt. In verse 38, they are described as a, a mixed multitude that also went up with them. These are our foreigners who who joined them, who were drawn to the Israelites, or drawn to the Israelites. God, we saw back in chapter nine that it probably included Egyptians themselves. We saw that they they seemed to have believed at least many. And they probably joined them as well. But also we see in verse thirty-nine that they had the The unleavened bread, cakes of the the dough that they had brought out, but they had not prepared any provisions for themselves. Stop and think about that. How How much do we pack for an overnight trip? They had not prepared any provisions. Forty years, they're going to be in the wilderness. But God would provide for them. Verses 40 to 42 tell us that God's ordained day had come. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. The God-ordained day had come. God protects. God cares for his people. He had this day set apart. He knew this day would come. It was always there. God's people need to be faithful, carrying on, pressing on, waiting faithfully for it to come. A night of watching, what does this phrase mean? It essentially means that God protects. God cares for his people. The gods of Egypt we've seen in the past, especially when we saw the, the, the plague of, of darkness, when the, when the sun goes down, the gods are basically gone, except for the gods of chaos, and it's a time of danger for the Egyptians. Their, their, their God who protects them is gone. But here we see it's a night of watching. God is with his people. God protects them. We never lose our protection. He's always with us. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. Psalm 121 says, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. God is always watching over his people. He has watched over his people and he always will watch over his people. In his commentary, Dr. Curra tells of a, listening to a missionary Baptist preacher in the Delta region of Mississippi preach on this particular text that I'm preaching on this morning. And the title of his sermon is, God Works the Night Shift. God works the night shift as well as the day shift. He's always watching over his people. Brothers and sisters, our, our road is long and our road is hard. Our road is long. Our road is hard. Filled with trials. Filled with tribulations. Jesus himself told us this. In the world you will have Tribulations. But what did he say? But take heart. I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. It's an overused illustration, but I'm going to use it again. I haven't used it in a while. I use it again. I believe it was Oscar Kuhlmann, German uh, actually Dutch scholar, who used the uh, illustration of D-Day and the E-Day. D-Day was the the day when World War II was basically won, when the Allies stormed the the beach beaches of, of Normandy. That was the, the blow that essentially meant the war was going to be won by the Allies. The E-Day was the day when the war actually ended. There were a lot of battles in between those two days. A lot of lives lost. A lot of, a lot of battles to be fought. But ultimately at D-Day, that, that victory was won. And that's what happened. That's what has happened in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The victory has been won. We have a lot of battles to fight on the way to glory and before Christ's second coming. But he will come again. He will come again as we continue on this pilgrimage. And when he does come on that glorious day, then every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Our God, how we thank you that you indeed care for your people. We thank you, O oh God, that you are a, a great and mighty God. We, we thank you that you have the power to do all your perfect will. And even today, O oh God, we would say, come, Lord Jesus, Come. Come to this world that is full of sin and full of trial, and yet, O God, we pray that you would give us patience, that you would give us faithfulness, that you would fill us day by day by your Spirit, knowing, O God, that you are a God who loves us, who hears our prayers, who hears our cries, who hears our praises. And that you, O God, are doing a work in and through us for the glory of your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.